no i mean architecture is political we gotta we gotta add that stuff indeed we're tearing down communities to build multifamily, and you have to understand we are creating displacement you're displacing black and brown folks and they don't come back half of this podcast would be dedicated to the history of tyler house my journey and my discoveries and hey i'm gonna solve this housing problem hey guys what's up my name is melissa daniels this is the architecturalist political podcast where black and brown folks talk about architecture i hope you enjoyed this podcast and be part of my storytelling rochelle mills is a president and chief executive officer of innovative housing opportunities or iho The mission of Innovative Housing Opportunities is to enrich communities by providing high-quality, affordable housing where residents can thrive, develop healthy habits, and achieve success and stability. IHO's California Development Portfolio provides housing to a wide variety of residents, including seniors, families, foster youth, veterans, those living with mental illnesses, formerly unhoused, developmentally disabled, and other special needs and mixed populations. Rochelle brings a diverse background, including architecture, community planning, and program development to IHO. She is responsible for overseeing the growth and implementations of IHO's vision, portfolio, and long-term impacts. Before joining IHO, she was a partner in Mill Studio, a design firm, and the founding director of Tours. During this interview, Rochelle actually flipped the script and I thought about removing this portion of the interview, but it gives an insight of who she is. She's very personable. Like I explained in the episode, this is dating. We are figuring out and trying to get to know each other as you are also getting to know us. She was a co-contact and when I get these, it's always a lovely surprise. Like, I, I don't know where this journey will take us, as I mentioned again in the episode, but it was it was a lovely journey. <laughs> I, I really enjoy getting to know Rochelle and just her level of perseverance, her, when I talk about persistence, and, and I titled this episode, The Importance of Persistence, because I, I learned something in talking to her. Becoming CEO was not an easy journey for her. And even she went to architecture school, so she knows about our struggles. And I also think about how enriched her life is. All of the lessons and and information that she knows thus far. And, you know, I I, I could talk to her for hours, just picking her brain at at what she thinks about certain things and how wise she is. She, She was definitely a treat, and I hope you see that as well. So... Short and sweet, guys. Here you go. I'd love to ask you, what are your most successful podcasts so that I make sure that I stay in the spirit of it? What makes you think, okay, that was well done? When I get emotional? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I can bring any of that to you. <laughs> You're like, oh, wait, hi. You said it's trends, you know, I, if you were a TikToker and have 3.5 million followers, yeah, my numbers are really high, but this is a love project. This is a, 
a passion project. So how did you get started? I mean, I, I know I'm not supposed to be asking, but I'm just. No, no, this is great because, again, we're getting to know each other. We're dating a little bit. <laughs> Minus the food, you know, or movie, popcorn. <laughs> exactly. So long story short, I was bamboozled by architecture. So I grew up in the housing project and I thought that architecture would be able to solve the housing problem, make my living conditions better. And then I went to school and it just, no, it didn't happen. And I'm excited to talk to you because you are doing something that I've always wanted to do. I could not get a job in that sector. Like I've done multifamily, but it was with a developer. It's for profit. It's, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. have to put these units in here, you know, that type of yeah. thing. But overall is there's a penthouse and a door person on the other side. Mm-hmm. But in the nonprofit, affordable, low income housing arena, those people, A, did not look like me and B, didn't want to hire me because I didn't go to an Ivy League school or I just didn't have those connections. So when I heard about you, I was just like, oh, my God. Like, And, and even though, again, like I mentioned, you're well-documented, I always think it's a different conversation when you have someone who looks like you. When I started listening to architecture-type podcasts, is always people who didn't look like me, didn't talk to or explore issues that affect me. And when they do have a black and brown person, it's like David Adijay, you know, like somebody super He's famous. the one that represents, yeah, everybody. Versus, <laughs> and then every other mediocre architect is on that podcast. And like people I've never heard of. And, you know, and I'm like, yeah. there are a lot of mediocre black and brown people that I love to hear from. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I was really young, I remember when I decided I wanted to be an architect. And my parents had taken uh, me and my sisters to a museum, and there was beautiful miniature furniture. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I want to do that. I want to build miniature furniture. And then I started to think about it, and I thought, well, then I need to build the environment. Because why would I build miniature furniture and it's not a miniature setting to put it in. Well, I I will do that. That's what I'm going to do. And then I thought, Mm -hmm. well, if it is that fantastic, then it needs to be full size and people can live in it. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. And I asked my parents, what is that? And they said, well, you know, you can be an architect. I don't even think I understood that Tom Brady on the Brady Bunch was an architect. But I knew that I had never seen an architect that looked like me. So I told my parents, well, you know, I don't think I can do that. And they asked why. And I said, because there's no such thing as black architects. And, you know, it's funny because you don't realize that children are thinking those things. And I remember the horror on my parents' faces. And so we lived down the street from a black funeral home, Angela's funeral home, and Paul Revere Williams was the architect of that. And so my parents started to tell me about him and brought me this funeral home calendar that had a little statement about Paul Revere Williams, you know, architect to the stars. And then my mother made sure that I met a black architect. And it's interesting because the black architects that she introduced me to were struggling architects. 
And so you'd go into these little offices and they'd have rolls of drawings around and their offices weren't these sexy, beautiful light filled palaces. And I remember thinking, mm, maybe I don't want to do that. When I got to high school, everybody was pushing that Blacks need to go into engineering. So whenever I would say architecture, they'd say, oh, you mean civil engineering? And I'd say, no, 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 I mean architecture. Oh, you mean electrical engineering? No architecture. Well, you know, it turns out, Rochelle, there's a school that does architectural engineering. And that was the road. If you didn't want to become an athlete or a movie star, you were going into engineering because that engineering or computers, because that was where Black people needed to be. And so I ended up going to Washington University in St. Louis. And I said to my professor, we're doing all this design work and where's the technical aspect of it? And he said with such disdain, do you want to be in a technical school or do you want to be in design? And I just, the, the, I mean, the way he said it was like it was just a bad taste in his mouth. And so I would be an idiot to say, I want to be a technical architect. I wanted to be a designer. And I saw a picture of Frank Lloyd Wright with the cane and the cape. And I said, doggone it. I want to be in stilettos on the job site. <laughs> Completely inappropriately dressed, but telling people how it's going to be. That's what I want to be. That is how I came back to Los Angeles because I met my husband, photo behind us, and uh, he had a position in South Carolina. And our parents said, oh, babies, you can't come to South Carolina. Uh, you know, in addition to the whole racial thing, they're not going to hire you to design the stuff you guys are designing except in California. So you got to go back there. So I came back home and we started our journey. I ended up going off on my own because we were both working for the same studio. And when I went off on maternity leave, I came back and there was a downturn. And in those few months that I was gone, my clients were gone. And like you, I couldn't get a job. In fact, I will never forget a client. I, I was doing kitchens. I love to cook and I was doing kitchens. I wasn't doing homes, I was doing kitchens. And my client said to me, oh, I hope I don't offend you, which means you're about to be offended. Oh, I hope I don't offend you, honey. But you understand, you don't look like an architect. Will your husband have a chance to look over the drawings before you bring them over? The thought that she could say that and think not only was it justified that she could say it, but it was unjustified that I could be offended by her saying it really caught me off guard so that when I couldn't find, when I lost my job, it was hard to look for another job because I didn't want that. You know, Rochelle, I'd love to hire you, but is your husband going to be able to look over your work before we do. So I went off on my own. Eventually he came and joined us and we had Mill Studio. And later on, we created a company, uh, Architours, so that I could, because I'm the kind of person that needs to be inspired in order to do the work I want to do. 
And so we ran that company for almost 20 years. But here's a funny thing. I just got to tell you this. I'm standing in uh, in front of a poster when HGTV was getting ready to come online. And I'm just looking at it with my head tilted. And unbeknownst to me, the producer of the series of HGTV was standing behind me. And he says, what do you think about that show, uh, that channel? And I said, well, I don't know what it is. He said, oh, it's a show, show about architecture and design. I said, oh, well, I think I should have a show on that channel. And then it would be good. And he said to me, Oh, that's interesting, but I don't think you could make a series uh, showing black architects. And I thought, what kind of comment was that? And I said to him, what makes you think that is all I'm capable of doing, but that it wouldn't be of interest to anyone? It was surprising that 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 was his gut reaction. Mm -hmm. That was Mm -hmm. gut reaction. I said, you know, you need to see what people are doing because I don't know what you're thinking we do. And so I went to show him some of my work, some of my friends' work. I'm in the National Organization of Minority Architects. And he said, oh, well, then I'd like to feature some of that work. And my thought at that point was my responsibility, and I never did get licensed, but my responsibility is not to demand that people take me seriously, but to show them why it is their loss that they don't. And that's where I feel I am in affordable housing, is now I actually get to hire the architects and I get to show people Uh, not demand that you take us, again, seriously, but I get to show people. People always say, you know, you guys' work always looks so great. And I get to say, here's the team. You know, the team looks like the communities they're serving. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is a position of power that I never anticipated that I would be in. So going back a little bit, it was a necessity that you started your own business. Did you always have the entrepreneurship in you or it was just like, I can't get a job. I don't want people to keep asking me for my husband's. Yeah, I will say I was fortunate to have grown up in an entrepreneurial family by requirement. My mother, I remember when my mother was in her 40s, she was an at-home mom and had then gone out to work. And there were jobs that she had that just really excited her. But when she turned 45, she said, you know, it's hard to get a job at this age. And so she went off on her own. And so when I found that I was interviewing and couldn't get a job, I just remembered what my mother did. Create your own job. Find your own clients find your own way of growing it. What I did not know, because you hear so much about how difficult it is to get a company going, I did not have the tools to prepare for success. That caught me off guard. I was used to hearing what the guy from uh, Cinetel had said, what my client had said. It never once dawned on me that I would put out my shingle and people would call. And I didn't have the tools to scale up. I remember an unfortunate story. I remember I was getting my tour company off the ground. And I remember meeting someone who just was so excited about what I did. And he said, 
Rochelle, I'd love to host a party and invite all of these leaders in the arts field to come and hear you uh, because they'll get so excited. Here's the thing. It, it, to this day, it's one of my most cringeworthy moments. I had never known how to speak to a crowd like that. And I didn't know how to tell him, I need your help. I need a mentor. I need you to be my sponsor and walk me through this. So guess what I did? I didn't go. I just didn't show up. And the next day, he was so hurt that he had put this dinner party together and the guest of honor never showed up. But he could see in my eyes that I was in over my head. And he didn't make that mistake again. I don't want that to happen to anybody else. I want to make sure that people don't count themselves out. We've got to teach each other how to be successful. And I think what we've done is done a good job of teaching people to anticipate failure, but not how to plan for success. There came a time in my company where we were on cable, we were in magazines, we had clients coming from overseas. It was me and my husband. We needed to scale up. I didn't know how to scale up. And I didn't have anyone I could go to to say, here's what you need to do. To me, that was tragic. I want to make sure, and I have the opportunity through affordable housing, interestingly enough, to provide programs and create partnerships so that those residents that have that entrepreneurial bug don't have to dissolve a company rather than scale it up. How was that transition from being what you are now to what you were back then? So Archie Tours to now IHO. It was, I'm not speaking in hyperbole when I tell you, when you have a company that you realize you can't grow, it is soul crushing. I don't know many people that don't walk around with their imposter person telling them on the other side, oh, you shouldn't do it. It's not going to work, you know. But to feel to the core that you are a failure is a hard thing to do because it's hard to market yourself when it shows that you don't believe in yourself. And to have been at a company and to have lost your your job it's hard. And then start your own company and see it growing and know that you don't have the capacity to take it forward. It's here I am again. I'm a failure again. I remember having doing a tour, going to Chicago, taking everyone there. My husband hates when I say this, but I remember very well knowing if we didn't get tips from the end of that tour, we didn't have gas money to drive back to LA. I mean, that is soul crushing to know that you are designing million-dollar homes for people, and you can't figure out how to get back from Chicago. When I knew I needed to take another job, I was fortunate because I have a twin sister who's an interior designer, and her husband she met at a NOMA meeting who's an architect, and they had a contract to do uh, construction oversight for HUD properties and said, Rochelle, will you help us do this? That helped cover our meals. 
that helped us cover our life expenses. And that was with overseeing the construction of a project for, at the time it was called Irvine Housing Opportunities. And when that project was done, the board contacted me and said, you know, we'd like to add some staff and determine where we want to go. Would you mind joining our staff? And I got to tell you, Melissa, uh, I didn't know anything about affordable housing. And I remember having a serious come to Jesus meeting. And I mean serious. I talked to Jesus. And I said, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know. You, you know we don't know where our next paycheck is coming from. But if this is from you, I will do it. And so I said to the board chair, who was a black man, and I said to him, I tell you what, I don't know anything about affordable housing. I work out of my living room, so I don't like commuting. I am a woman of leisure trapped in the body of a peasant. (laughs) And I said, I have been told I have a bad attitude. So if you want me to come, I will see you on Tuesday. And he said, we'd like you to come. That's how I came. I said, God, that must be from you because who would hire someone? You laid everything out on the table. Yeah. And I said, if you, if this is what you want, I will give it my all until God says it's time to go home, Rochelle. And throughout, I've been at IHO now since 2006. And there have been times when I have been, I'm out, I'm out. And my husband will say, get it out of your system (laughs) and go back in the next day. I asked to be the CEO, not once, four times. Four times. And I, you know, (laughs) to be told no three times by people who look like you, in addition to, you know that they're your advocates and you think, so if you guys don't think I can do it. But I will tell you this, that each time they told me no, and I would say, God, am I supposed to be here? And I would feel in my soul you need to stick around. I think, okay, well then what am I not learning? And I do believe I had so much to learn, so much to learn, but it was a black coach that, that actually coached me through it. So what were you lacking? You know, when I first came into affordable housing and we had one property and to want to lead an organization and not actually have role models that I can see. I can see at that time, it was too young. You know, I didn't have enough expertise. What I would have liked and what would have been a better uh, suggestion was, let me help you find someone who can coach you into this. That's where I, I differ, is when I have staff now, I start admin assistant, entry-level project manager, I say the day they come in, where is it you want to go? Let me help you get there. If it's not with us, let me help you get where you want to go. If CEO is where you want to be, let me help you chart that path. And I am sincere with that because I don't want to happen to somebody what happened to me at that dinner party where they're so intimidated they just don't show up. And I find what people of color will do is they will chart out a 10-year path. I want to be the CEO, but I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to earn my marks, and then I'm going to do that. And hopefully over time, they will see how much value I brought. 
someone from a different community will say, I want that job because I think I'm bad enough to do that. And then we will say, how did they get that? Because they asked for it. Qualified or not. Qualified or not. And in most of the time, not. Not. <laughs> not. And you are asking for these incremental increases in your salary. A story a friend of mine gave me that has burned into my head. And I hope your listeners take this to heart. He worked for a bank. He would tell people when they would tell them how much they loved him, put it in writing. So he had the proof he was an excellent asset. But he watched as people constantly got promoted over him. After, and I remember him saying it was about two years, he finally got fed up and went to his bosses and said to them, why are you promoting all these people over me? And their response to him was, we were wondering how long it was going to take you to ask. We can't want it more than you. If you don't advocate for yourself, you can be mad from sunup to sundown. But if Sally has the gumption to say, I want it, train me to get into it, while you're hoping that someone sees that you are that good eraser cleaner, you know, I can clean the chalkboard, you know, then it's no wonder. People have told me all the time, you know, they can start men and women off with the same salary. Men are going to ask for a raise far more often than women. We've got to get to the point where we do that. And my job as a CEO and I believe this wholeheartedly, is when somebody comes to me and undervalues them, I don't hire them at the discount rate. I tell them what their value is and have them advocate for the rate that I'm going to pay. Because again, they may not stay with me, but when they leave, I want them to have that same fire that Sally has, that same kind of audacious arrogance that is supported by the talent to be able to say, here's my value. Here's the price tag for my value. So why did you stay? I stayed purely because I felt I was supposed to. In the same way I felt like God must have given me this job, I really felt if I'm still here, if he's telling me that I need to stay, there's got to be a reason I'm here to stay. When I got the position of CEO, I will never forget. It wasn't a given. I had to interview three times. And in the meantime, I had really become cynical and a little bit angry. And I started a group called Strong Black Tea. And it was a group of Black women who I admired. I didn't even have the courage to speak to some of them. But my daughter had challenged me and said, Mom, who's, who is your support system? And so I said, I didn't have one. And she said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, what can I do about it? She said, create your own support system. So I wrote down all the women I admired, all the women who looked like me, who I admired, whether they were my same level or far ahead, and I invited them to tea. And the point was that our goal was to sit down 
And everybody had time to just completely brag. Tell us all the fantastic things you've done, all the things that you are so proud of, but you don't feel safe and comfortable to say. And so we went around the room and we all talked about it. And I remember my sister was in the room and she said, now pass the microphone back around. And this time, tell the stuff that you didn't tell us the first time. And it was interesting. People had the first time around, they would say, I, I am now the CEO of an organization. But when the microphone went back around, they said, I have increased the profits of our organization three times in three consecutive years. That is where, you know, you're leaving money on the table. You cannot tell your value, convey your value, if you don't even say it out loud to yourself or to a room of your peers. And so one of my peers, they would always say, why are you still there, girl? Why are you still there? And one of my peers came to me and said this, Rochelle, you need to go where you are celebrated, not tolerated. So the next time you go into that room of people who have seen you grow for 12 years and they say, but we're not sure yet, I wanna interview you, you tell them that. And so we sat at that table and my uh, board was on that third interview. And I said to them, this is where I get off the ride uh, because you have seen my capacity and I will go where I'm celebrated, not tolerated. I will never forget. When I left that meeting, I was no longer the employee asking to be taken seriously. I was the executive that they were missing. And they called me back after that and said, we apologize. And the job is yours. I think it was my mindset I needed to be convinced myself that I was the right person and to be able to say it and be willing to walk out. When you're not willing to do that, you hang on too long, you stay in a relationship one week too long, you, you know, those kinds of things. So I felt I was supposed to be there, but as my coach told me, you know, Rochelle, you want them to celebrate you, but you haven't given them the language to celebrate you. Learn how to tell them why. And when I learned how to do that, it was interesting. People will parrot back your value. You will say to them, you know, I can do this. And they will say, you will hear them say to you or to other people, do you know this is the person who did X, Y, Z? And I think, my gosh, I didn't tell them. I assumed as my friend did. You can see all the hard work that I'm putting in. You know what I'm doing. Maybe they did, but it was infinitely easier when I wrote the script for them. Then they can tell me. Wow. The things you've experienced all throughout from Wash U till your position, your when you first became head of IHO. How has your mental health been? And I know it's in stages, obviously, but yeah. just the discrimination part. 
and we don't talk about this, even the misogynistic part of mm-hmm. black men. To be quite honest with you too, because you're 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 a black woman. Yeah. How? <laughs> how? Like <laughs> how did you how did you handle it? My mother and father used to say something. Again, it didn't make sense when they used to say it. They said, you'll take it until you don't. You know, at some point you get to the point where you realize, I'm not asking for permission. I'm, I'm just letting you know, you know. And when you get to that point, you, you realize that it's 90% of how you carry yourself. That other 10%. Is what you are giving over. You, you're giving that away. And there are moments when I will find myself working myself to the back of the room. You know, I, I can tell that I have, you know, that something has happened or I've gotten intimidated. And I have to, you know, one step at a time. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And I will have to work myself, and I'm talking literal work Mm -hmm. myself out of the corner of the room and move myself forward (laughs) and move myself forward. And my sister used to say, one of my sisters said, you know, where are you standing in the picture? Are you in the center of the the picture or are you in the corner? Because the corner can get cropped out. And I was always on the corner of the photo. And so I was always cropped out. And it takes a lot of attitude to work your way into the center of the photograph. But I have to remember that, uh, you know, when I, you know, sometimes I will say, oh my gosh, I'm in a group of folks and they've done all of this and who am I? And I will think, okay, I've, I've moved myself to the corner again. I've got to move myself back. I've got to move myself back. Sometimes it's more comfortable and easy to do than others. And sometimes you can spend too much time wallowing in self-pity, and I do that. But we really don't have time. And I think about it the way my daughter says, what are you going to do about it? And I think, okay, Rochelle, I don't know how, you know, what my period of time is in this role, but in this role, I have the ability to affect change. And so I can only do what I can do. So the key is to not not do it. I hope that doesn't sound simplistic, but you know, what can I do right now with the contracts we have and knowing people like me who have businesses like me, architects who have been in this field for 20 years and still don't have the contracts they would like to have? Well, guess what? I am now in a position to sign those contracts and to ensure that they are included in a partnership that gives them meaningful experience that they can use. We are not looking at tokens here. And so it it really is, you know, why did I stay that long? Why did I take that? Because I really felt that God had put me in a position to learn what I could so that I could do what I could. And so I will go to architects now and we had to grow. I had to grow through uh, at IHO by partnering. It's not fun. It's not always sexy. Sometimes you are the gum on the bottom of your partner's shoe. But you pay your dues and you move up. 
I wish I had had somebody who didn't, I didn't have to pay dues as long as I did. But I will say to a, a someone, you know, I really love to work with you as an architect, but I can't work with you unless you reach back and pull someone else along. And used to be that they would say without missing a beat, oh no, you know, with the liability insurance, the time, it really costs us a lot. I have the luxury now of saying, I won't sign your contract. And before you put in Black Firm 101, let me read through it to see what their role is. That whenever you are doing your marketing, that their name has to go with it. That when you are doing the uh, photo shots, that they have to be in the shots. That they have a meaningful role on it and a meaningful title attached to it so that they don't have to be a partner for three years, you know, that they can take this and and run with it. And I say with the same veracity, though, to my brothers and sisters in the field, do not take me down. You know, if I'm going to bat for you, you better show up because I've had too many folks and we all know it. We've got people in our families like this. They will. Oh, but Rochelle, Rochelle said, but Put your name in it real quick. Yes, yes, you know, and I will say you have got to perform. We are all trying to move the needle. You screw it up, you screwed it up for all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the unfortunate thing is we're still in a position and that one messes up, the house of cards falls. So we all have to do our part. But I love that I stuck around long enough to make sure that, I'm checking for folks, that I'm looking for mid-career men and women who want to get in this field. And I've got the ability to either hire you or to connect you to someone to make sure your resume doesn't move to the bottom of the stack. Uh, I think that that is an incredibly powerful position. Mm -hmm. And though I don't sign the drawings, I still get to wear the stilettos and the photographs at the construction site. So I haven't lost what the vision of the eight-year-old Rochelle wanted to be. I want to switch gears and talk about architecture. Sure. This design of your your portfolio type. I've noticed that this this whole thing of gentrification, they go in the neighborhoods and because it's cheaper and then they flip it and then all of a sudden rents are $5,500 a month. Yeah. The thing about it, besides the economic aspects, but born and raised in D.C., Chocolate City, now was formerly Chocolate City, but trying, trying to bring it back. But you walk and you notice that doesn't doesn't feel the same, doesn't look the same. You know, granted, yeah, things do change. But if you go across, you know, Old Town or, you know, somewhere in Virginia, one or two buildings maybe, but it, yeah. it's, you understand what I mean? So... Or yeah. even Georgetown. Georgetown still looks like Georgetown. Yeah. For whatever reason, there's no multifamily in Georgetown because they yeah. fought hard. So my point is that the aesthetics and it doesn't feel, it doesn't look like, and California is different than East Coast. Like West Coast is, I feel like is more progressive in their design than Somewhere here in the Northeast where it's more brick, more traditional, yeah. colonial style. Yeah. 
So in looking at a site and building on it, are you thinking about how we aesthetically trying to make the community more? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's interesting because I do think those periods of time when I wanted to get out, that would be what brought me back. I would think to myself, well, who else is going to make sure that we don't get boxes with a splash of color, you know, a touch of whimsy in our neighborhood? And you've got lower income people living in something that everybody can drive by and say, but those are those people, you know. Who else but someone who came from an architecture background who understands how placemaking and the creative uh, component of it, how it really uplifts a community. So those were the kinds of things that kept me where I am. And when we take a piece, we, we take a look at a piece of real estate that period of time when I did architectures is so important to me. And it took my team a couple of years, the team that I have right now, to get it. Because, I, you know, they would always say, oh, my gosh, here comes Rochelle with the architecture and the, the shapes and the style and, uh, and it's costing. And we did a really interesting exercise. We had a project that we had done, which by all means is beautiful but it was all painted white on the inside. And I wanted to hire an interior designer to come in and uh, do the interiors. And, oh my gosh, you know, the cost of that. And you know, remember, Rochelle, we're doing housing for low-income people. We can't spend the money. I said, but you know, the cost of the well-being of people will cost us more to not do this. If Who's people this? are not... You know, th it, truly, everyone is saying this. Our, my wow. staff is saying it. Wow. The policymakers are saying it. The funders are saying it. But we went back. We, we massaged the budget, and we had a second interior designer come in. And this time, added accessories, color. On the exterior, we added some, you know, we took care of the landscaping, et cetera. And we took photos from the exact same positions. And I went back to my team and I said, now we're going to look at better and best. Yes, this is better than what most people have, but was it the best that we could do for the resources that we had? And we went and we talked through each photograph. What do you feel about this space? I really like this space. And then what do you feel about the second space now that we've added color and we've added texture and things? And they would say, that's the space I actually want to invite my friends into. When you are bringing people who have been on the streets for the last 15 years and they have a posture of defense because they had to build up that, you want them to come into a space where they can start to feel relaxed and trusted, where they can sleep a good night's sleep, not in a place where they feel Yes, it is clean and it is safe, but it's hermetically sealed. It is a hospital-like. And when you have that, then they're not sleeping well. Guess what? The cost of our um, programs reduce. They're able to reduce their meds. 
They are socializing more because that socializing is so critically important when you're dealing with folks who are coming from traumatic backgrounds. The cost to do the design right is much better than the cost to put in the social services after the fact. That just is uh, economics. And I think we can demonstrate that. And so when we go into a community, now I say, look at the context. Who better to say that than someone who is trained as an architect? Look at the context. Look at the commercial stock that exists. How can we design something that can attract reinvestment? Not just house people, but can attract reinvestment because this is now going to be an, an asset for the entire community. Can we design it in such a way that the parking is not the most prominent feature? You know, I, I don't know in D.C. you probably don't have that, but in L.A. you house your cars, you know, the cars first and everybody else after that. But can you design it so that the cars are not the first thing people see? Can we design it in such a way that the green space can be open to the public at a, a certain hour so that it truly becomes a community asset? Uh, can we design the outside spaces so that people have areas where they can use their Wi-Fi uh, and not be around the kids? They, they want a space of their own and they can kind of hang out. We tend to design for very little ones, you know, the tot lots. But what happens when they turn into teens and tweens and they don't have a place? Well, mayhem happens. So can we design a space that creates outdoor space for all age levels? Because we're looking at the continuum of life, the continuum. Only to me, someone with an architectural background can understand that we are simply not putting people in a place with a bedroom and a kitchen, but we're making something that the entire community can benefit from. I don't know that people who don't have an architecture background can see it holistically like that. California is really unique in the sense of homelessness and policies that really prohibit building. Like, how are you yeah. How were you successful in that? Well, it's interesting. I think that there are a lot of, because of the incredible homelessness, we're the homeless capital of the world, I believe, certainly of the country. Uh, there have been a lot of ballot measures that have targeted money towards that. I think, though, that we tend to chase headlines. And so we tend to develop housing around what is the media darling right now. When I first came into this field, it was seniors. Then it was veterans. Then it was homeless veterans. Now it's chronically homeless and permanent supportive housing. And each time they make that decision, each time there's a voter initiative and it makes that decision, the one before it gets tossed out. So if you were doing a senior project and homeless is now, it's only homeless seniors. And so you've got to modify that project. What I find what I believe to my core is that it is a mix of incomes and a mix of populations that will be successful. If you are only developing and putting money aside for 
homeless. There are a lot of people who are teetering. That means that they can't, we can't help them while they're teetering. They have to fall off the cliff before we can help them. That to me is unsustainable. I don't even think, you know, I think it's inhumane. But what people say is, well, if they can do better, they should do better, we'll take care of these. Well, if you take care of them all, if you build for the distinctions below uh, the, what do you call it, market and luxury, uh, because you're losing, that that's the term, the missing middle. And that's what they're referring to. All of those people who can't afford to live in those market and or luxury homes, but those who have a little too much to be able to live in the deeply affordable. But if you could put it all together, imagine that, you know, you are a person who don't know, who doesn't know that you could do better because you have, like I had talked about, you're beating yourself up every day over the bad decisions you've made. But now you see your neighbor is doing some things and you don't, you can go to your neighbor and say, well, how did you do that? And your neighbor becomes a peer mentor. This is how you do it. All boats rise. You have a tendency that all boats rise. Right now what we're doing is we're concentrating the housing in areas along transit. And transit is typically in urban areas which means we are concentrating poverty in urban areas. That to me is criminal because if you put all of the folks with the lowest education, and this is not at all meant to villainize folks who are struggling, but if everybody around you is suffering the same as you're suffering, who are you learning from? Who are you mimicking? You know, I think about it this way. I remember when I was a young parent and my daughter was in school and there were a group of parents who always seemed to know what was going on. They always seemed to know how to get their kids going somewhere. And I remember when those parents got up and left the school, I had just been voted parent organization president. That moment after the vote, I resigned and followed those women because I said, I know those kids are going somewhere and I've got to follow and figure out what they're doing. If we were to think about housing in that same way, where we put folks who have had a hard time with folks who are figuring it out and folks who have it figured out, we're going to create that pipeline of people moving into their own American dream. I think that that's what we should be doing. It seems like we're we're always late. We're three steps behind a trend. You're just putting Band-Aid on a womb that's healed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's what it seems like. I do find that. I think that what we're doing, again, when we're looking at it as only publicly funded, we're, we're responding to something that was elected. And the election is around what the crisis was or the fire coming up to that election. So by the time somebody gets in and the vote is made, we're addressing a problem that was probably two or three years old. We're not set up with public funds to be able to address it and course correct in real time. That's where I think putting 
public and private resources together is important. For our organization, we talked about what we could do if we had our own money. And a lot of organizations are thinking the same thing. And so we've now created what we call a housing innovation fund, where we're trying to attract private capital so that we can take those projects, those passion projects, those things that we know the communities are asking for, the solutions that we're looking at in real time, those equity decisions, uh, incorporating technology, all of those things we can do with private dollars, but you can't do public dollars because those decisions were made and those rules were put in place hoping for a good outcome. I mean, it really, I don't, I, I don't believe anybody was trying to do something inappropriate or improper or stupid even, but it is baked into that system where if you, you know, we've got public funds and we're trying to pull the project together and we have gone to great lengths and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to design a project for this particular funding source only to find that as we're getting our application done, the rules changed and we're no longer eligible. I wanna take that out, that uncertainty out of the equation by attracting our own private dollars. So that when we say this is the project that we would stake our reputation on, we know this is what the community has asked for and what makes the most sense and what is beautiful architecturally and what, you know, the social services that go with it and all of that, that when the rules change, we can say, well, that's okay. We've already got, we can write our own check. We can move this thing forward. I think that we can't do it. We cannot expect a public process to be able to move in real time because it's just not set up that way. So it's never going to serve our communities as well as it could. I love our conversation and I need to be aware of your time. So I could talk to you for hours. I could let you talk. I got, <laughs> I got, I got a gazillion other questions. You reel me in, girl. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. I know you now. Like you're, you're cool peeps. Well, I love that you are that you put the platform together. I mean, the fact that you are passionate about it to get the voices out there, that's half the battle. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to Architecture's Political Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it informative or at least entertaining. If you like what you heard, please share with others. You can also connect with Arcus Polly on social media, currently on Instagram, as well as Facebook and Twitter. If for more information, visit us on our website. It's arcuspolly.online, A-R-C-H-I-P-O-L-L-Y.online. I also want to thank our loyal supporters who have been with this podcast for at least three years. It means the world to me, and I'm totally grateful to have you part of this community. I will try to bring you the best content as possible, and I can't wait to share more amazing episodes with you. 
if this is your first time listening or just like a particular episode or all of them you can support this podcast by going on glow.fm slash arcuspoly again thank you for your support it means the world to me and thank you so much for listening